Welcome to episode 15 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Good to have your company as we settle in for another wide-ranging and eclectic golf discussion. My name's Rod Murray. I'll be your guide on this tour of a couple of very keen golf intellects when I bring in my co-host and guest in just a moment, Adrian Logue and Sydney-based golf course architect Harley Cruz, champing at the bit to get on the microphones here. But alas, they must wait uh, as we deal with some of the administration tasks that are part and parcel of running a major golf podcast network, being a big-time player in the golf media, people, comes at a cost. If you're a first-time listener... I'm going to have to interrupt if you keep this <laughs> No interrupting. <laughs> if you're a first-time listener, welcome. Thanks for easing us into the homework. With a reminder that Good Good is just one part of the Talking Golf suite of podcast offerings, head to TalkingGolf.com, just the one G in Talking Golf, for others, including the wildly popular history podcast with Connor Lewis, Derek Duncan's excellent architecture show, Feed the Ball, the Grumpy Old Man Show at State of the Game, and not forgetting on the tee with Dr. P, a very different look at women and golf with an academic bent. Once you've perused the catalogue at Talking Golf, do yourself a favour, log on to thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talking Golf. Check out the remarkable range, stop your giggling over there, Cruz, the remarkable range of some of the game's best apparel, footwear, and accessories. The Golf Society is a proud supporter of the Talking Golf Network, home to quality brands including Hugo Boss, Calvin Klein, G4 Cross, and many others at the top end of that clothing footwear and accessory tree. There's a special offer for Talking Golf listeners. I won't tell you what it is. Surprise yourself by logging on to thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talking Golf. Just the one G in Talking Golf. And cast an eye over their fabulous range. Now normally at this point I delve into ways to get in touch. But I've been yabbering on for long enough. So let's get to today's show and let my fellow travellers on the good, good journey announce their own contact details. First, it's my regular co-host Adrian Logue in the studio for the first time in 2020. Adrian, welcome. Let the listeners know where they can find you in the Twitter sphere. Uh, well, they can go to at Adrian Logue. Well, that'd be about the only way they'd find you on the Twitter yeah, sphere, isn't it? Pretty much. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, or just go to adrianlogue.com. Adrianlogue.com. Everything's there. Golf course photography, yep. blogging, thoughts on the game, musings on golf. Yep. Uh, all good stuff. Good to have you in the studio for the first time in 2020, mate. Happy Thanks New Year. Much. Welcome. I hope you had a good festive season. Uh, I did, yep. Very enjoyable festive season. Very busy start to the new year as well. Well... But, one day we'll discuss it, but you're kind of in charge of the World Handicapping System introduction here in Australia, aren't you? So you have got some uh, some yep. work ahead of you. A bit going you, on at the moment. Have you got less hair than the last time I saw you? Possibly. Yeah. Is it greyer than it used to be? <laughs> yep. I think yep. it might be, yes, indeed. Uh, looking forward to having a chat with you today. It's also a great pleasure to welcome into the studio our guest for today, a man who Adrian in particular has been keen to have on the show for quite some time. Sydney-based course architect Harley Cruz has been in the business for the best part of Three, or it might even be four decades. First with Thompson, Woolridge and Perrett, then with Greg Norman, golf designer. Now, out on his own and doing some fabulous work, it must be said, if the reaction of the pros at the recent Legends Tour event at Kalara is anything to go by. Harley, thanks for coming in. Looking forward to the chat. But first, let everybody know where they can find your musings on the information superhighway. Yeah, well, thank you, Rod. Um, podcast version, by the way, just want, as a warning, and don't leave me too battered and abused by the end of this, but I'm great looking vo- forward to great this. Great voice for podcasting. Perfect. Thank you. The yeah, face is good for podcasting yeah. as well. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, all the necessary tools, mate. You could go all uh, the way. Yeah, you can find me uh, at cruisegolf.com, mm-hmm. and Twitter, I think I'm at Harley Cruise. I'll put some links in the show notes. Thank you very much. Uh, Cruise with a K. K-A-U-S-E. With a K. K-A-U-S-E. Exactly. Who, uh, might not be... Familiar, I mentioned the pros there in Kalari. You've just completed a major, major overhaul there. We're going to talk about all sorts of things to do to, today, but I wanted to start with, what's that process like? A major overhaul of a prestigious suburban Sydney golf club. There must be great aspects to it and nightmarish aspects to yeah. it, I'd, I'd imagine. Look, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's been a, better, it's been a better ride than I expected, actually. It's, it's, 
It's one that started in um, November, November um, 2017, I guess it was, and uh, was appointed as a consulting architect to come in there and redo 18 greens. And I guess, uh, to, the, to the club's credit, they had a very good general manager who had been involved with development prior in a, in a previous life in pubs and clubs. So he knew how to steer the, the club through this process and, and the members. And so getting up there was a very interactive project, both with the board, the committee and the members. And that process actually drove some outcomes that I hadn't seen when I started with the job. So in that sense, it, it was a great project. Uh, and we, the feedback from members and that consultative process saw not just 18 new greens, but the reversal of two holes. And I said to the club, and I questioned the members, we've got to make sure that, you know, if we're doing this, we want to get these greens in the right place and we're we're going to spend this money. Are all the greens in the right place? And the answer to that question was, no, they're not. And tight course, you know, lower north short of Sydney, and uh, there was 19 holes. And I said, you can't afford 19 holes if you want to get the best golf course on this piece of land. So that process... um, uh, allowed us to eliminate one of their par threes, which probably had many of hole in one ones <laughs> up on the honour board of the Ooh. club, and that hole was disappearing. Yeah, don't think about that, do you? No, that's that's right. taking some that hole was, so it was a lot of emotional yeah. connection to a little short little par three that was there, and then reversing two holes, and one of the holes was the captain's favourite hole. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and I said to him, "Why is it your favourite hole?" And he said, "Well, because it's the toughest hole in the golf course, mm. and tough." Of course, in architecture, doesn't necessarily mean good. So, you know, we're out there to do the whole 18 holes properly. So, look, that's it's been a great process. We had a, a, a an A A grade construction team building it, and so during the sort of 12 intense months of construction, it's you know we've got a lot of things done, uh, and the outcome's been great. I mean, this golf course hasn't been touched since 1962, effectively. Mm-hmm. Little little band aid things here and there, but you know the greens were tiny. They were 370 square meters in size. They were flat, they were featureless, they were stuck up high in some spots. You know, you know, it's, it's beautiful terrain in terms of its uh, elevated areas and its hollows. Yeah, so that, that yeah. part of it is great. But things were stuck up, they weren't bedded in. So at the outcome of all this, we've got 18 new greens. The average size now is probably 550 square metres. Um, a lot of them are quite a bit lower. Right? Yeah. yeah, we've cut a few of them down, like a metre, one of them you know, down two metres just to get embedded in. Uh, and get some separation to the surrounds and get some shapes to feed off and things like that. So, yeah, the outcome's been good. Um, but not just the greens themselves. It's very much about um, the surrounds of the greens. Um, before it was Kaikuyu, and as Mike Clates used to say, you used to, the ball used to you'd chip it at a roll and go on the air before it landed on the green because <laughs> it had a little one-inch mm-hmm. one jump. So we've eliminated all that, and we've got these tight surrounds now, which is very much that sort of sandbelt style of golf where you've, you know, you're off the side of the green, you know, do you putt, do you chip, do you lob it in the air? Um, those sort of choices were never Options. there before. It was just a lob shot before. Yeah. Bunch of stuff comes up there. Just, yep. just on a, I've not seen Kalaria, but it sounds, I've seen what Tom Doak's done at Concord, and it, seems, it feels like a very similar thing. Most of the greens have come down into the landscape more than what they used to be. The, the general feel of the course is not all that much different, but that is most definitely has been the case. They've yep. settled on the ground, which brings that hole. Uh, ground game into place. While you're talking there, Harley, it sounds to me, or it reminds me, a little bit like building a house, isn't it? Like you remember the golf course? You start, and then you have these ideas of, well, actually, if we're going to do that, we could do that, and then we could tack that on. All of which brings its own problems, but in the end, if you get the best product, I guess it's been worth the... It's just not an exact science, is it? Building houses is. It's all square, straight no. lines and bricks mm. and all that sort of, And even that comes with its own issues. Golf courses are... 
totally yeah. free range. And a, a challenging property as well at Kalara with three paddocks and yeah, yeah. Ro- lots of road crossings and things like that. It's not an ad for Kalara, by the way. They're not a sponsor of the Talking Golf Network. <laughs> yeah. They might be one day. But I am interested because Kalara, probably for people in Sydney who play golf, it is one of the more prestigious clubs in Sydney. And so it comes with a whole, lot of, a whole bunch of aspects to it. You've got to be very careful about the way you deal with that. And there's a lot of, I would imagine, very headstrong people at all of those types of clubs who've got their own ideas about what should be done that don't necessarily always agree with yours. Correct. And I, and I think, so there's, a, there's again, there's a sort of, you know, I said before, the captain's favourite hole was, was the fifth, um, an uphill uh, par four to a tiny green at Satin Shade. And, and, Just a tad close. And, and for him to get that, um, you know, to get that across the line with him was talking about golf architecture, you know, and, and the importance of the golf course, you know, tough, not equaling good. The golf course being, um, you know, if you look at the average handicap of the golfers at Kalara, you know, probably typically around a 23, 24 mark, not similar to anywhere else, but, you know, it's a busy club doing 50,000 rounds of golf a year. That was a very, that hole was a very frustrating hole for the majority of members and particularly women golfers. And so, so I guess in, in, in redesigning things was thinking about, um, the average golfer at Kalara, and you've got also a, an average age that's probably in the in the sixties. Um, there was a lot of frustrations at Kalara for golfers um, with silly bunkers off the tee that that just frustrated the lesser player, but had Didn't no bearing to the better players. The worst bunkers of all, yeah. they punish the player who is yeah. not capable of dealing Ex- with the punishment. Exactly, and there's still three more on the ninth hole which are going to be filled in. That's the intent. Um, so and when we do all that, Kalara will have only have one of its eighteen holes with a bunker on the drive at the moment, and that's be on the on the seventh, and the rest of it is pretty much bunkerless off the drive, and um, that event, the seniors event that um, all the legends of Australian golf played in before Christmas. Um, Were you out there for that? Bob? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I went and watched. Went, went and watched man. it. And, <laughs> that uh, can go wrong for an architect, can't it be? Well, sorry. <laughs> And I came up behind the 12th green and, and Clates is on the 12th green and, and uh, I warned my uh, partner in the buggy that, that Clates can, can drop the F-bomb pretty quickly and, and uh, anyway, the first words that came out of Clayton's mouth were exactly that. Um, and uh, as, as he was trying to get onto the 12th green with his sixth shot, maybe fifth shot, I'll let Mike confirm that. But anyway, it was... and. Um, yeah, it was interesting. To, oh, it was really exciting actually to see them watch them play the golf course, and and they came off and and you know they were nothing but positive um, about the outcome, and and then they'd played the Aussie, I think, just prior, a few days prior. Fowler shoot sixty three or something crazy. Yeah, yeah and it, it was windy at, at the Aussie, and they're getting ready for Australian Open, and he shot it and won it with a six under, and and it was benign conditions, Kalara, and he won it with a five under, um, and we weren't getting ready for Australian Open, so. Um, so I think that we've got the balance about right at Kalara and taking all the frustrating bunkers. The comments from the older members, it's, it's easy to get around. Wow. And, and the comments from the, the ladies' captain, she's a two-handicapper, she's finding it harder to score. So I think, I think that's the essence of you know, good architecture. But getting back to this, you're talking about exact science and things, I think, as one of the, the board members of Kalara said, he said, this is, not, this is not a science, this is an art. That's right. And I said, well, that's right. And he, he didn't realise... Um, how artistic the process was, and and not just in the design and presenting design to members, but this you know on the field. I mean, living 15 minutes away from Kalara was a, a blessing in disguise for the club. It just meant I was there uh, nearly every day. But that that was important. Um, I had a, a friend of mine doing the shaping of of the greens, who I've worked with since you know, back in since 1991. Uh, so we we had a you know good uh, designer shaper relationship. So I think the the artistry of what we do uh, is something that until a club sees that happen, they don't realise it's sort of... And it's a grey, 
art. It's not black or white. It's something that, you know, you can't sort of, it's not tangible, it's hard to define. And so when you put empirical things on it, like budgets and things like that, mm. you've got to keep things under under control. Yeah. There, there was experience. You took me around the course while it was still under construction and were showing me a few of the holes. And one memory that really sticks out in my mind, I think it's on the 12th hole, the big par five that sort of goes down and up again. Yeah. It's a pretty dramatic sort of hole. Yeah. It was always very sort of enclosed in and you sort of had to plot one shot into this one specific spot where you could hit it and then another shot into a very specific spot, which was the only place you could hit it. That's all opened up now. There's this wonderful sort of linked fairway there. Yep. But the, the memory that I have is we stood at the top of the hill and we were looking down at the green and you've got these very dramatic shaped bunkers. The the bunkering, it must be said, is very dramatic looking around, yep. around the green surrounds. And uh, we're standing up there and you said, see that? that little bit of wear that's in the grass here on the fairway from where we're standing down to the edge of that bunker. It was about, must be, we're about 150 out maybe. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I can see that. It's almost like there's a path there. He said, yeah, that's, that's where I've been up and down this hill <laughs> about 100 times looking at the shape of that, the back that. lip of that bunker there, mm-hmm. getting that right and going down and, and trying to reshape that a little bit so that people can walk in. Like there's the, the maintenance aspect of it, like people being able to enter the bunker and get out. Mm-hmm the drainage aspect of it, but then also just how it looks from the place where yeah. most of the golfers are going to be hitting their shot and uh, that care that went into that. And it is a spectacular little vista you get from the top of that hill. And is that the fun stuff, Harley? Yeah. There's a lot of not fun stuff that would go, paperwork and environmental stuff and councils and committees and dealing with the people, all the frustration. But None, none of those people are bothering you when you're there on that, that hill looking down there. Walking up and yeah. down there. Is that oh, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the creative bit. And, and that's, I think that's where our input is the, is the greatest. And I think that's what we're, as an architect, we can, we can do all the plans in the world. And as, as Gil Hans says, I do golf course architecture to my bu- feed my bulldozer habit. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, I do golf course architecture to feed the, the habit of I'm out there on the, in the field getting things, these things built. And... and and plans are a part of the, a step in the process, and they gets to a certain point. Um, and so that that stuff of going backwards and forwards and looking at things is about getting it right. Uh, but it's and it is the, the practical things of getting people in and out of bunkers. Um, and you know that's something that I learnt in the early days. I was very fortunate to meet Claude Crockford, who looked after Royal Melbourne for forty five years. When Royal Melbourne was built, <coughs> the bunkers are very different from what they are today because. Ro- Claude, the golf course was far more open than it is um, today. Uh, it was getting blown around by northerly winds and all of a sudden he had sand coming out of bunkers. So he actually added capes into the bunkers to stop the sand blowing out. He added them so members could get in and out of these big bunkers without having to walk too far to get out and have to spend minutes raking these things up. And he put islands of vegetation in the bunkers too to stop the sand blow. And as far as I know, he's probably one of the first people to have done that and now islands in bunkers are sort of like a feature that gets replicated around the world but so getting in out of bunkers and if, you know we talk about Royal Sydney shortly but I think the, the issue with Royal Sydney too is getting physically getting in out of bunkers mm. has been difficult and so the the bunker capes and the shapes and the exit points at, at Clara are multiple exit and entry points out of each bunker and little twists to the capes to give them so they've got a face on one side which you're playing in your line of play but on the loo Leeward side is sort of tilted, so you can easily step onto. So there's a lot of little subtleties into the, to the to the practical function of the bunkers, but also that relates to the final form, which had to be very fluid and very a lot of artistry that has gone into them. Uh, and we're dealing with bunkers too, where we're 
the base of them was done in a in a new product, which is a, a concrete product that that basically has water to pull through, and we've done an edge in a sort of an artificial revetment product, um, which has been part of the issue of trying to create these sand face bunkers in in heavy clay soils. Um, if I go back to my time at Norman Design with working with Bob Harrison, the Elliston, the Vintage, um, Brookwater, um, Settlers Run in Melbourne that I was involved with, um, all these pr- places where you're doing sand face bunkers and heavy soils and trying to get that vertical lip a la sand belt style. It's very hard to have a stable lip. So this product um, allowed us to do that, um, but it meant that once it was set and rigid, I couldn't change things anymore. Uh-huh. So, so I had to be involved at that stage. <laughs> Measure twice, cut once. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it, is, you know, it, it sort of took a bit of the fluidity out of the, of the... So it just meant that I had to be on the pulse with all that and get that done right. Um, um, and so hence, Adrian, many, many trips back up and <laughs> yeah. down the fairway to get these, these things right. And, um, and, you know, you go out there today and, and um, yeah, it's, it's very satisfying to see, see those results, yeah. Just talking about the, that bunker product, I wanted to ask you about this in a broader sense. We talk about technology in golf all the time on this show, and the distance debate is obviously at the forefront of that, but we know that technology has impacted every area, not just the clubs and the balls, the coaching, the agronomy. What about the land, the, the golf course design? The, the, mention that product you just said there. That, that's one <laughs> that strikes me as... Eco bunkers, <coughs> is that the one? Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think the... Yeah, I think the, it's... it's um, Technology, yes, such as these products we've talked about, it's about having something that allows a, a robustness of the of the product. That allow we're we're in a, a in a time where labour is expensive. You know, golf course maintenance, labour and and staff costs are expensive. So that the investment by this club into getting these bunkers done and built, you know, sort of bulletproof type bunkers means that you know every time there's a rainstorm that you haven't got three staff pushing sand back up bunker mm-hmm. faces, which those staff are out there like they were last Friday in the rainstorm they're actually out there cutting grass soon after the rainstorm they're not pushing sand back up whereas there's probably golf courses nearby that after the big, big rainstorm they know that they've got to go out there and push sand up bunkers yep. step one fix yep. so, step so two, it's, else, yeah. it's about providing a, 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 a having these, these products being solutions to you know good architecture and good design but an, enabling something that's sort of fairly bulletproof in its maintenance but still having the you know, the flair. The I visual think. thing. The, the thing I find striking about those bunkers at Kalara, and, and for people who haven't heard of the, this Eco Bunker product, yeah. it's revetting, it's a revetted face, but yeah. it's using like an AstroTurf, right? Yeah, it's, it's second-hand uh, sports fields out of the UK. It's right. all soccer fields and tennis courts that, yep. that this guy's come up with this product and that people are throwing away, and he's going, oh, hang on, if I use this and cut into strips and yep. sand it and get some weight into it with some sand, I can actually create a product that I can revet, use for bunker revetting. Yeah. So, and I can testify, it looks pretty realistic. Like, there's no... Like you've got to be in India. What's that golf course in India that's got that? Oh, yeah, that, which whatever just, that just is. It looks, looks like foam yeah, that's awful. been sprayed on the face or something. Yeah, yeah. The, feet high. The, awful, unless so. you're very close, you can't really see what's going on. And I think as a little bit of sand gets kicked up onto those faces as well, they'll look more and more natural. Correct. Over the years. But they also create this very firm edge which yep. doesn't look like it's going to collapse a little bit like yep. you often see revetted bunkers just just sink a little bit yep. the, the revetted bit well they need to be redone don't they and they often have to be re- every, every well, even, even less. less than that I yeah, think, yeah. I think yeah. New South Wales I think there's a five a, a six or seven year period of yeah. having to redo the recycle at, 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 yeah. at New South Wales and that so. takes a bit of knowledge too you can't you, 
not just anybody climbs in there and reverses the right. they? You, you need yeah. to know what you're doing. Yeah, so. it's, there's knowledge and skill set and, and, a, and a significant cost. Yeah. You know, but over, the thing is, when you can get the edge that sharp as well, it creates this dramatic shadow, which yeah. you get a really nice looking the top line. About the sand, people talk about the sand belt bunkers, and for yeah. mine, that's the effect perhaps subconsciously people is that. The, the green's coming right up to the edge of the bunker, mowing right up to that edge yep. because it's got that lip yep. of dirt that you can see, three to five inches of... It's very hard to get, as you say, you, you can't do that in college. You couldn't, hadn't been able to do that in yeah. prior to this. So that, yeah. that's that sand belt look that people, I think, really talk about. It's that dramatic yeah. right up to the edge yeah. Yeah. with the mowers hanging over the bunker while it's doing the... That's right. Cut up near the edge. Uh, Clara, it's a fairly, it's a very stylized sort of result if you compare it. I, mean, I was down at Melbourne at Christmas time and play, played the West Course and a couple of other places. And I think, you know, it's still, it's uh, th- those edges are, uh, you know, they might be, you know, you might be thirty centimeters, forty centimeters, and they're rough and they're windblown and they're rugged. Uh, and then you got, as you said, the mown green right to the edge. But it's, you know, when you're in soils, you do something like we have at Clara. It's, it's, it's a stylized version, yep. but it's still a pretty good version yeah, of it. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned Royal Sydney a couple of times. I'm very interested in your role there, of course. Gil Hans, well, a couple of things have happened in the world of architecture in the last dozen or so years. We've now got some rock stars. Hans, Doak, Cor Crenshaw, David McClay, Kidd. Yep. There's this group of people at the top that everybody looks to, and they're the rock stars, and deservedly so. They're fantastic. And we've talked about it on this show, and Derek talks about it on his show, Feed the Ball, quite often. There's a sea of people underneath those guys with at least as much ability and talent, a lot of them who are just having struggling and struggling to get a go. You're working with Gil at Royal Sydney, and what's your role within that? I imagine there'll be some design part of that, but you have a very specialised branch of sort of landscape architecture you're bringing to that project, don't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's basically, as I say to people, I'm everything off the fairway edge. So um, when you look at a typical golf course, uh, you you might have 25 hectares of mown turf, and you might have... You know, another 60 hectares of non-mown turf. And effectively at Royal Sydney, I'm everything off the mown turf, where historically Royal Sydney has just been wall-to-wall mown grass, and it, there's there's about 15 hectares of currently sort of maybe irrigated, maybe not, certainly mown, certainly fer- fertilised uh, cooch roughs. Uh, and the intent in the future is we're in the new, new layout is, is 15 hectares of that, 150,000 square metres that's not going to be mown turf anymore. Um, it's going to be, and what? Yeah, what is it going to be? Well, it's going to be uh, about nine and a half hectares of naturalised native grasses, which will uh, basically not have irrigation. Um, so we're, we're we're cutting back the irrigation to just irrigating the playing surfaces only. Um, they will golden off or brown off, depending which way you want to look at it. Um, in summertime, I prefer to call it gold. I prefer to call it gold. <laughs> Depends off. what time of day. It yeah, is, really. Clay wrote his article, and, it, and what, what he wants. Brown the, is beautiful. The, yeah. the brown yeah. is good, or brown is beautiful. And I actually, uh, I said to Clayton, "You've done it. You've done us a disservice <laughs> because uh, yeah, raw milk Con- presence. Contrast is beautiful. Con- I think yeah, is the real. Well, that's exactly right. It's the contrast. But I think one thing I, I noticed at Royal Melbourne, and it, it's it's not brown and it's not brown and green it's the green and gold yeah. and, and, and it's those golden roughs that, that at Royal Melbourne during the President's Cup which, and the sandiness was amazing uh, at Royal Sydney uh, we've done an area there trial area between the 2nd and 16th where we've got the native grasses off they did turn gold in December and it just looked spectacular and it didn't look like Royal Sydney it looked like a bit of Melbourne sandbelt finally yes. uh, and an area where if you hit a ball in there you will find it and you'll have a shot um, and I think a lot of the fear around you know taking out mown cooch roughs at Royal Sydney, cooch uh, long roughs out of Royal Sydney and converting it to 
native grasses is is the fear of either it being fully open sand, uh, which was a great fear, or, or thick and lush for, for ball, ball loss, but it, it intent is for it not to be. So it's going to be very golfer-friendly, to use my words to members, a very golfer-friendly sort of rough. Uh, and then we've got um, six and a half hectares of coastal heathland, which is ESBS, Eastern Suburbs, Banksia Scrub, Vegetation and Coastal Heathland that belongs in Royal Sydney. So we're going to bring back over 100 Indigenous species back to the site, of which there's only probably 10 or 15 left. So it's a significant project. So for me, it's a, it's a great project. Important been, beyond golf, Harley? Is that, is that important beyond golf? No, it's lovely for Royal Sydney, but is that doing a service to Sydney's natural native sort of... Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the context of where Royal Sydney Golf Club is in that valley in, in Rose Bay, connecting Rose Bay with Bondi, it's a significant large scale. In fact, it's the largest piece of managed green space in the whole of the uh, Wallara Municipal Council. Uh, it is a significant scale of land where we can do a lot of good where it then becomes part of you know, wildlife corridors of, of bird life moving from you know, way up the northern beaches down you know, past Sydney Heads and through down to La Perouse and beyond. So it, it becomes an important wildlife um, corridor, part of the corridor. Uh, bring back the species diversity, will bring back the wildlife diversity. And you know, when we talk about wildlife diversity, it's, it's birds, it's, it's skinks, it's, 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 it's mammals, it's a whole range of... and insects... You, you, you let grasses grow instead of mowing them and all of a sudden you get um, insects breeding amongst the grasses. Because. The insects become feed, food for birds. You get the bird life back in. So what golf course doesn't want to have more wildlife back on it? And, mm. and I think this is an important role of golf courses in the future is you know, what is our environmental and ecological potential? Which and is something golf does almost no work in selling. Uh, probably a bit more in America. The Audubon Society's had a good relationship with golf courses over there, I think. Yep. Less so in Australia. People in Australia, both within and from outside golf, I think of they think of golf courses as this fenced-off area here, completely separate from everything around them in all ways, through membership and exclusiveness and having the fences and all that sort of thing. None of that's quite true. The golf does need to get active in selling its important role as green space. We see councils who close golf courses saying, we want green space. Well, golf courses are green space, I think. Correct, and they're significant green space. And you're only going to look at them, you know, get on Google Maps and look at Melbourne and look at the sand-built area of Melbourne, and it's this patchwork of mm-hmm. of suburbia with golf courses through it that, that are a really valuable green space um, in many, many reasons. Uh, and as I said, it's, you know, rural Melbourne, for example, has some of the only species of that known flora left in the world on its golf course. Yeah. It doesn't exist anywhere else. That Richard Forsyth told me every November, I think, they have a lot of the local plant specialists and experts come in and they take samples to go and plant elsewhere to try and save yeah. some flora that yeah. may well yeah. become otherwise extinct. Yeah. And you and consult to Royal Melbourne as well? Uh, I'm, uh, I, not, not formally. Uh, yeah. I have I've, I, I have a I've sort of yeah, informal sort of discussions and I've presented to Green Committee and things about the flora. Yep. And it's something that I'm you know, passionate about that particular place in Australian golf and I'm passionate about its flora in particular. And, and it's, it's a golf course. You know, she's the grand dame of Australian golf. Mm-hmm. Um, any and excuse to go there, let's be honest. Yeah, that's right. Even if, it, even if you have to dress it up as work, any excuse yeah, yeah. to get there. That's work. right. <laughs> well, it's right. And it, she, <laughs> any excuse. So you jump on a plane, unfortunately, get to Melbourne. It's sort of one, one of the disadvantages of living in Sydney. I'm a long way away from the Melbourne Sandbelt. But it's, you know, it's, there's a golf course that 
you know, it's been revered recently and great accolades from the world's best golfers during the President's Cup. And it is an amazing golf course and obviously in the world top 100 and top 10 in the world, depending on which rankings you look at. Um, but it's still a golf course with enormous amount of potential to improve. And the improvements probably you know, aren't necessarily in tee to green golf architecture. The improvements at Royal Melbourne really is in the flora. Uh, they've got areas of of, of um, cypresses which are in decline. You know, they're, they're, you know they've got to manage the decline of species uh, as they enter senescence and phasing in new flora. And, that, and you know, the forebears planted cypress area because they were cheap, nasty, and grew in, in mm-hmm. sand with no water. But the reality is, does Royal Melbourne go and plant those same cypresses back again for two generations, three generations' time to inherit the management and the cost of having to remove them in the future? Versus, let's go down the you know the indigenous landscape path and and re- restore certain areas of Royal Melbourne. So, so there's a lot of potential even at Royal Melbourne for that, and that's the grand dame of Australian golf. You look at Kingston Heath, Kingston Heath, the, the Pacris Impressor is the floral emblem of the club. They were down to less than twenty plants on the entire golf course, mm-hmm. you know, and so they've been on a program with their hort guy over the last ten or fifteen years to replant and 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 not easy to germinate the original uh, heathland um, flora of its course and the actual club's fl- flowering emblem. So I think, I think vegetation of a golf, club, golf course becomes part of a, a clear identity of a golf club, not just the sustainable as- aspects or the ecological aspects, but it's, it's, the, it's part of the brand. And, and um, so I think every golf club uh, in many ways could look at its vegetation and say well, what are we and where are we going with it and 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 where will we be in 10 years from now and Royal Sydney is exactly that They're, I think the process of Royal Sydney will be seeing that digression from what it was and a, and, a, and a well-intentioned member planting trees at the late 40s early 50s that saw the golf course you know get wiped out of its of its local flora and watch fairways get narrower and narrower over time where they were they're now sort of average widths of 23 meters wow. in the new design the average width of fairways at, at royal sydney and with the gil hans design is going to be 41 meters average mm-hmm. width so there's going to be a whole lot of um practical implications of you know having broader wider fairways restoring that width uh, which members haven't seen as a sort of myopic sort of growth of the trees happened over time it's like restored. weight gain isn't it it happens slowly doesn't it you don't notice it and then yeah. one day you weigh yourself and you're 20 kilos heavier than <laughs> right. the last time you weighed yeah, that really is how it happens and then of course people are attached to it by the time that happens and they resist the notion correct of reversing it yeah. correct people don't like change and i think and and yet you know, Kalara, we, we took out quite a few trees out of Kalara and, you know, the course was sort of sort of temporary shut down with quite a few trees out. And even me, and I'm in the game, we're marking these trees to remove. We've got approvals to remove them. We're marking them to get removed. They get Two weeks later, you actually forget that that tree was even there and then you, you go back like I did last week and I was showing someone around us and uh, I'm going, how in the hell was that tree actually... <laughs> those trees actually even there because this golf hole's still narrow, you know, yeah. and there was a whole row of mature pine trees right there. and it's, So... Very quickly, you soon forget so that the trees were there. And I think at the end of the day, it's, um, you know, I think very quickly the positives of what we're going to do at Royal Sydney with the, with the local native flora is going to well and truly outweigh the, uh, the removals of some old senescent trees that are there today. Mm, it's very exciting. There's just one final thing on Royal Sydney. The sand that they have there underneath the surface, is that suitable for bunkers? Because it's sort of this beach sand which 
to me, this doesn't quite work in bunkers when they're looking at different types of sand. Is that right? Didn't That's correct. To drain you. He practiced on the beach and he got good at bunkers. What do you worry well, about? Well, I, 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 I mean, to me, like if you've got a site like that, if you can't use the sand that's there, it's a great shame. But perhaps can you the dig case. a hole? Is there, is there a reason why you can't Sydney? can't use the sand there? Yeah, no, yeah, that's right. And, and can you dig, dig a hole and have a bunker? Yes, you can. But I think the exercise with um, the reworking of course in two thousand two, two thousand three, with uh, Ross Watson. Uh, was redo some of the bunkers and and the issue being though is that that native sand is a light uh, aeolian windblown sand that that um, is is a very lightweight sand and it basically you know balls are plugging in the bottom of bunkers when it reopened and I think so there is sand and there is sand it is a shame that uh, at Royal Sydney you can't really use that native sand that that is near the surface for for bunker sand is there is there a dune or is there an area where you could dig down deeper and find mm-hmm. some heavier Salt, more solid sand. Perhaps there is. Yeah. Um, it's no joke trying to find sand for golf courses these days. Is yeah, it? correct. Like, so is, you know, you've got to go. Out, we're heading out to Cowra, yeah, you know, yeah. to get sand these yeah, days. Um, it's crazy, isn't it? And so Royal Sydney's trialling various different sands, including some of that sand from Cowra, which is what we used at Clara Golf Club. Yeah. And uh, the sand of Clara Golf Club, was, you know, it's Concord just, used that as well. I think didn't correct. They, it's they just, almost sold them out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Royal Sydney sand is very light. It's it's a it's a grain shape. The shape of the sand grain as well is what what, what creates. We're an, getting a, nerdy. A, a, yeah, I'm, I'm like it. I can oh. see you starting to get a little What are you doing? Tell me more. The grains. It's like looking into the coffee cup. Looking. So we're we're um. So the grains of the sand. So they're they're quite rounded. So when you've got a rounded grain of sand, and the fact that it's a lightweight particle size is they're very very movable like like marbles I guess whereas if you get grains of sand which are angular they'll lock in together and they'll mm. reduce uh, uh, withstand the impact of a ball strike so so that's that's the issue getting the right shape of sand as well so yeah Royal Sydney's on sand it, it basically means it's great to grow grass it's great for drainage um, a lot of things you don't have to do but um, with bunker sand itself um, be getting the right sand the tricky thing though is is I guess is the sand that comes from Cower is quite a white sand, yep. and and it's going to, um, as opposed to the native sand, is a sort of a, a, a grayer, beigey color. It's not gray like Royal Melbourne Sandbelt sand, but it's uh, it's not pure white. So that'll be an issue. I think you've got to commit wise, to it, don't you? You do. If, if and you're going white, color, you've, they've all got to be yeah, that right. same pure yeah. dro- pure snow. Yeah. Color, but I think the the key to it. So the color might look a little white and sterile. And hopefully that maybe go off over time. But the I think the key to the bunkering at Royal Sydney will be Gill and his the edging and, and getting that sort of articulated edge going on. And, and there's some beautiful edges, bits there that are there today where there's a, on the 16th hole, there's a bunker there with a nose that's coming out, which has got some, it's windblown, it's rustic, it's it's got a whole lot of character to it. Uh, you know, just like a Melbourne Sandbelt bunker with some native heath growing out of the top. And and the question is, you know, can we replicate that in the future on, that, on the golf course? Hopefully we can. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Just on the trees, I... I can't remember whether Brad Klein said it or I read it in a story of his. He's done a lot of writing about tree management, obviously, over in the States. And he said that yeah. one of the best ways to convince people about what tree removal can do is to pick a copse of 50 trees and say, look, let's take out 10. Let's, let's and just take out 10 and then see what you think. And he said almost universally people will go, Wow, that looks much better. Just like you were saying. I didn't even wow. remember there were trees there. How did they even? How were there even ten more trees in there? Look at it. Yeah. Now. We need to take out some more, <laughs> and people will start to get it once they they kind of see. It. But when it's in place and they're used to it. Yeah. You mentioned increasing the fairway widths at Royal Sydney. So more broadly, aren't you going to make it too easy? 
Isn't that what you do when you make golf courses wide? It's too easy now, isn't it? Everyone's yeah, got to shoot 65, aren't they? Yeah, of course. No, I think, uh, yeah, it's, and, and look, there's the example I'm talking about Kalara, but being a bit more user friendly for the high handicappers. Again, it's, and, you know, look, we're talking about the Grand Dame, Australian Golf Royal Melbourne, all, you know, the width, you know, generous width. And so I guess that brings into sort of the whole skill of golf course architecture and at Royal Sydney, it's with Gil Hansen the, and the design of things from a strategic point of view wide fairways but you know setting up things strategically at the green with the bunkers the angles of the greens the approaches and all that will just determine at the end of the day um, on a given hole wherever the pin is on that particular day with the width of fairway you're going to have a lot more fun a lot more interesting strategic golf where you may be in advantage to be down the right hand side of the fairway on a given day or the left the next day Uh, and Gil talks about a lot of flexibilities in design particularly with tees so big long ribbons of tees where you're not just teeing off from the same spot you were last week as you are to this week and every week week in week out you're teeing off from five meters of where you were the week before all of a sudden you might be teeing off from 20 meters further down the fairway or 20 or 10 meters further back this big variation so getting with the fairway getting a long flexibility in tees all of a sudden you're going to get a golf course that's going to and obviously options of pin positions a real interest uh, from a playing point of view week in week out or day to day on the golf course and width of fairways will give people that and it'll give the user friendliness for the for the higher handicappers but of course you know there'll be strategically located bunkers for those longer players to really be up and challenge that line so so that's where Royal Sydney is going to have a, a whole new dimension to its play that currently it doesn't have today. Golfers hate that stuff don't they? Let's be completely <laughs> honest if you if you try that teeing system at most golf clubs around the place, most of the members will be confused by it, confronted by it, and not want to have anything to do with it. That's but, the, the, truth. the tees changing position yeah. radically. If, each if day. you have a if you have two separate tees on a hole, that's deemed okay. But if you have one tee with eight different potential teeing positions that change the mm. make the hole extremely elastic, most golfers will find that far too confronting. Well, you, what, what golfers actually want most weeks is exactly the same experience that they had last week now i think that's weird in a game that lend that has no boundary lines mm-hmm. like football and cricket and all this. i think that's a weird approach but it's what people seem to want until they sample something mm-hmm. else quite often so what, what about the educational aspect of that sort of thing and what do you expect to hear from it'll be a mixed bag obviously there'll be some people who go this is fantastic immediately but surely there's going to be some people say what have you done to our golf course one day I turn off here, the next day I have to go all the way down there. It's a completely different yeah. hole. And all of a sudden you had to say, well, hang on, I'm, don't, I'm not taking the driver out of the bag, I'm actually taking three wood out of the bag. Or all of a sudden I'm actually going to have a crack at that bunker there and I, I don't normally get there and I've, got, I've driven into the bunker, you know. So I think, I, I guess it's a cultural shift, isn't it, in, in a given club. Mm-hmm. So when, you, when you're used to something and all of a sudden, you know, there's going to be a, a cultural shift in the way things play. I mean, I'm consulting a golf club down the south coast where every men's comp is played off the back tee. Yep. And I'm t- the, you know, these are men in their 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s playing and they they basically say we're going to be playing off the back. And beat themselves up. And beat themselves up. I and, must and, leave and the golf course unhappy today. Yeah. I simply must because my wife expects it. Once a month I come home unhappy and today's that day. That's right. So, and I watch them playing and some of them are struggling to get to the fairway and I'm, and... And the opposite of that is, you know, back to Royal Sydney for a second, Gil Hans has talked about, he said he can't wait to get on it and play it off the forward tees. Mm. And, and he said it's going to be a lot of fun off the forward tees. So, so I think it's, it's a bit of a, a cultural thing, cultural shift. I mean, people, I guess it's, you're talking about it, got to play off the same spot week in, week out, but I guess it's, 
learning to enjoy the f- in the fun of it. And I guess, Adrian, with the new handicapping system rolling out, it just means that you know you can choose where you want to hit off a be, given yep. tee on a given day. And and that was one of the frustrations of a of a former uh, three times uh, club champion, Raw Melbourne, who's now in his eighties, who who struggles with the fourth west and he can't get up the hill anymore and he's struggling to play and he's you know it, and and i've said to him but you're, you're playing from way back here when you played new york club champion you were 40 50 meters further forward than where you're playing off today mm. and he said yeah but i've got to play off there because i'm and at 88 he's still trying to compete you know, and 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 against the uh, the young bucks so so i think this whole tea thing and this new handicapping system is going to be a real positive thing for for golf courses, golf design, us in golf design, uh, and, and and having this opportunity to have this wonderful range of team positions and and people able to play off different different locations and compete. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see where it goes. But I think I like the idea of these things moving around so people, you know, too. if you're limited on space, you're limited on a room. How do we make the game a bit more fun, a bit more interesting? Is just to move these things around and and be a bit unpredictable. And it's not just for the old blokes to hit off the front tees either. It's I, I want to play off the front tees every now and then as well. Uh, yeah, no, you're an old bloke. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to tell you, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but uh, at, at, we're old. At blokes. the club where I'm a member, I'm, it's one of the few places in my life where I'm still referred to as a young fella. Because you, you're under the average age. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a long way. Yeah. Let's talk about the F word, uh, fun, because far too much we talk about the C word in golf, championship and challenge. Yeah. Why do we forget about fun in golf? Most of us play the game for fun. I get the pros and they're making their living and all that sort of stuff. I don't think that excuses totally the notion of eliminating fun. What what happened to fun in golf? Why do we why don't we focus on it enough? Well, I'm not sure if I know the answer to that question, but I guess people um maybe watching too much T V and of, of golf and, and, and watching these and I guess everyone, you know, sees this tournament play and sees people Driving in a million miles, and 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 it's all a bit too serious. And uh, you know, I used to work for you know, five times Open champion Peter Thompson. He and he says, and he, he, I was fortunate enough to receive a set of clubs from Peter, and he, he said, all you got to do is keep a little white ball rolling in front of you. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you score. Beautifully and, simple. And he, he said, now if you get off the fairways, you'll need you'll need this club here. That'll that'll get you off the, out of the rough, and you'll you do need that one there. And 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 it was you know Peter, you know, always brings golf back to the sort of simplicity of of the game and the and the fun of the game and and um, so I think and 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 in the new developments you know you got things going really crazy in China there where each developer wanted his golf course longer than the, the next you know and mine's longer than yours sort of mentality to these golf courses where they became stupidly ridiculously hard to play and and uh, for everybody except the pros correct yeah, <laughs> that's that's right. we find them quite straightforward it's, actually it's like bragging rights on the you know these 7600 yard courses and things like that but you know the average golf wasn't wasn't having fun i i was involved when i was working at norman design with the the norman course at mission hills and that this client was going to undertake to build five courses at once and we and the client's brief to me is we want the Norman course to so be we'll just pass you've, over you've that. Just, you've, you've done a Kramer. You've blown my mind there. I'm just going to build five courses at once. Sorry, yeah, yeah, continue. Just, continue. So that, that that was well, that was a blowing mind moment for me too. But you've got to understand the Chinese psyche. I mean, this is a country that built the Great Wall, and yeah. so so the, the the Chinese mindset is the mega project, and 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 this was the and they built that big three gorges dam project. So this was kind of like the mega project of golf. Uh, was to build five golf courses at once. But the brief from the client was, we want the Norman course to be the toughest. And I said, well, 
yeah, but the toughest doesn't mean good. You know, that I can go and build you the toughest, most ridiculous golf course. Yeah, 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 please. And I said, <laughs> so, 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 but, you know, the back of my mind is, you know, I want this thing to be good. And, and so, um, you know, there's a balance in there. And, and, you know, and, and the intent was, okay, five golf courses at once, how do you make them all different? And, you know, we went with the philosophy of the, of the sand face bunkers and all these things that part of the sort of inherent design aspects that Bob Harris and myself with Greg Norman Design did and 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 the American designer looking after the other four was trying to make them all different in various different ways. But so we just did went ahead and did the thing. But you know, I made the fairways as wide as I could and and actually quite a user friendly golf course. But off the back tees it was pretty bloody tough but you know at the end of the day maybe we, sh- we should just hide the back tees on all these golf courses <laughs> if we hit the back tees um in in amongst landscape and grasses the people didn't, almost didn't perceive that they're even there maybe that's a better solution <laughs> which is fix the ball and not which is i think which is place. which is the royal burkdale model isn't it where there's there's tees there that when mm-hmm. ian baker finch hidden back in the dunes yeah, yeah. back and, and peter peter took peter t took ian baker finch around to the practice rounds of burkdale and and actually showed Baker Finch where some of these tees were, which are way back up in the dunes. He didn't even realise they were there. So when the average person goes to play Royal Burkdale, you never see these tees that are yeah. way back. St Michael's has got that here in Sydney too, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, there's a bunch some of weird tees that hidden tees at St Michael's and some fascinating different really perspectives they the give you on the whole. Much, yeah. It's one of the things I always find I'm a bit torn with. When you play a completely new course that's been designed, like it's all been laid out on a computer before it's been put in the ground, you find that there's this natural rhythm built into a lot of these courses. If if it's not a course that's designed to have carts going, yeah, um, there's this natural. It tends to be this natural rhythm. You leave the green from a certain exit, and you just sort of you could almost walk with your eyes closed to where the tee is going to be, and it's going to be about twenty meters. If you stop walking after about twenty meters, you'll be standing in the middle of the tee that you were supposed to stand on, and that's something that doesn't exist in great old courses, which which came more organic. Often the tee will be just off the green on a, on a place like the old course. Mm. But the third tee next to the second green there is you can putt from the third tee up to yeah, the second absolutely. green. I know you and, can, and the, I fifth, the fifth to the sixth. <laughs> yeah. The sixth tee is basically on the fifth green. Yeah. But, the, um, but the, the flip side of that is a lot of old classic courses as well have extraordinarily weird routes to get to the next tee. Disjointed walks, aren't they? Yeah, really odd, odd, odd things. Everything's a bit odd and yeah. random. There's this randomness that's fantastic about great old layouts yeah. but yeah, and you don't you kind of lose that randomness in a lot of new places but at the same time you do get this advantage of you can trick the person's mind into just going to the correct spot very easily there's a sort of natural flow that you can create from designing the landscape yeah. to that extent you, br- you brought us neatly to the D word Adrian you didn't even mean to design no depressing <laughs> <laughs> Trinity Forest has been removed from the PGA ah. Tour schedule after this year and it might be the best example I can think of of a tour course where that whole notion of teeing on the television at least it looked like markers were just taken and put somewhere randomly on the fairway to create the tee for the next hole which I thought was unbelievably fantastic they didn't look to be designated tees the resistance to that cause right from the very beginning from the pros was obvious and loud. Mm. What, do, mm. what do we do, Harley? How do we get professional golf to be somehow an agent for good change in the game rather than bad? I think that's the most depressing thing that's happened in professional golf mm. this year. And we saw the, the same thing at Chambers Bay, didn't Forest. we, as well, where the yep. the tees were big ribbon tees that's as right. well. And they even had the, the quirky thing of 
path. Some of the tees not being level. Not level. Like deliberately. Changing and, and the 18th from a par 4 to a par 5. That was maybe a little too elastic. Exactly. <laughs> even, even I found that a bit confronting. But, but, the but great that thing, relationship. Yeah, a, a tee that's not level, you can you could choose to tee it up with the ball above your feet or something yeah. to hit a certain shape. If, of you, if you're good enough, that's, that's fine. I like, the, I like the thought of that. I do too. I, I love the idea too. I've just played a golf course like that. Huayna Shores in Vietnam is exactly that. Is that right? got, you come off the green to the next set of tees, and the tees are deliberately wonky um, ground that moves all that? over the place. Uh, Robert Trent Jones. Okay. Well, he hit the wood Chambers Bay as well. Yeah, and, and, and actually the day I played it, we had some markers, which you know, you're teeing off and the ball's above your feet and yep. things like that. So... Um, yeah, so there's a lot of and and it just this ground. There's a bit of flat, there's a bit of down, a bit of uphill. You know, there's a whole lot of you know unpredictable stuff going on on the yeah. tees, which is a lot of fun. It's yeah. the antithesis. To get back to your question, it's the antithesis of professional golf, isn't it? It's like, oh, that's incredibly inconsistent. Like, not even the tees flat. Like, wasn't there a tee at Chambers Bay that they played on day three that Lee Westwood was blowing up because he didn't know it was there, so he'd never even hit from there. In right, the practice yeah, was a yeah, totally different right. angle. And, yep. Yeah, the long par three from up the back and the sixteen short from yeah, short, yeah. Short, right. or seven eight. Yeah. So, yeah. You've already mentioned the names twice, Thompson and, and Norman. You work for both of them, both mm-hmm. professionals. Mm. What do they bring? And two different characters, they probably bring different things themselves. But but what do you notice anything of them? And I, I suppose Greg in particular played in an era and worked in an era of course construction that's very different to what we see now. Much different world. Is there a different attitude? Do they look at the? Do they look at it differently? Is it? What, what did you glean from them as being professionals, professional golfers as course designers? Anything? Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I think there's uh, very different people of very different eras. Um, Peter would talk about Greg being in the in the pop star era of, of <laughs> money, and and you know, he wasn't just a sports star; he was almost a pop star when you end up in the social pages of of the magazine. So so it's a very different era. Um, but Peter. Yeah, Peter. Peter loved playing on Lynx golf. You know, he he and look, he also loved certain parts of America. Went there too. There was a sort of a um, uh, and you know Melbourne, Melbourne Sandbelt. But he, I think, he still saw um, some of the Sandbelt golf holes and what Mackenzie did. Had you know, he used to talk about if Colt came into Melbourne instead of Mackenzie, Melbourne would have got a very different type of golf. Mm-hmm. And Peter, you know, it's an interesting discussion. Isn't yeah, it? might not have it just now, but <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I actually played the the open course at Menor Links last week, and obviously, um, which was Peter's magnus opus. But he, Leviathan, I think he called it. Yeah, Leviathan, what a correct. Yeah, way with words. Yeah, yeah Leviathan. Leviathan. Oh, yes, Peter was a, is a wordsmith, that's yeah. for sure. And and uh, um, yeah, look, I th- you know, Links golf to him was real golf, you know, and and he saw it that way. And I mean, Greg, you know, two British Opens, winning on British British golf. But Greg's uh, uh, golf designing, I guess Greg's a bit. You know, Spent more time playing in America and, and perhaps um, of this modern age. Uh, you know, Greg loves Royal Melbourne. Um, he, he's sort of the modern age of golf courses as well as British British golf. Uh, interesting, the two personalities, being, well, they you know, different sort of people, but one thing I noticed when, when dealing with both these two men is they would go into, the, into, the, into, the, into what we're doing with golf courses, whether it was actually designing or on the field making decisions. Very much how they play golf. You 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 come to the shot, you look at it, you make the decision, get choose the club out of the bag, exercise the shot, and move on. You never look back. And it was the same with out in the field with golf design. You look at something, or even just meetings in a room. You look at it, make a decision, bang. Don't don't ponder. Don't sort of sit on it and fester it. You just bang, move on, execute. and uh, execute and then live exactly. With it. 
and they they were like that in the in the both of them both personalities the same and whether it's golfers them can golf the game has conditioned them to to look at it that way no 150 uh, meter paths between the bunker <laughs> and the, the spot right. back up in the fairway where you're looking at it from yeah that's right so it's um so but very similar those, those sort of decision makers as soon as I, my first meeting with with greg was going up to vintage with bob harris and greg myself and and there was a particular hole that bob was looking at a couple of different options and and greg looked at it walked up went back looked at it and bang decision made turn point there the fairway's going to go we're heading that direction so and there was no sort of looking back. That's the you know, and very similar. So, uh, but in terms of things, I, I guess with Greg, and you know, I only saw Greg twice a year. You know, we, we were Sydney, Sydney. He's based in Florida. We saw him twice a year, and that might have been a project in Australia, or a project in Asia. Um, but I guess, yeah, for him, um, in one of the things I did, did take away from Greg's golf was that he, a couple of times, just through natural terrain, all of a sudden you had a landing area. That had a downslope, which would kick a ball forward. He didn't didn't really like um, landing areas with downslopes, where the you know someone with a uh, a three wood could end up in the same spot as someone with a driver due to the kick of the downslope. And he and it, and it very much wanted the lie in the landing area where he was going to be to be sort of flat flat stanced, mm-hmm. which is I guess what a lot of the pros want. And probably I hear stories about Nicholas is the same. He he wanted sort of flat flat areas in in the landing zone so you had to sort of it was on a plate um so i think a lot of the pros get used week in week out wanting stuff again comes back to predictability and you know t should be flat and landing area should be flat things should things in their minds should be a defined defined thing an equity of punishment if you hit a bad shot and i hit the same bad shot we better get the same penalty i can't possibly have a worse lie than you because that's not fair yeah and you can understand that i do understand the mindset but even those great players, when you think about it, and you ask them what their favourite golf courses are, they don't exhibit any of those features. No, Augusta right. National and Royal Melbourne and St Andrews right. exhibit none of those features. So there's yeah. something weird happens. What did Rand Morissette call it? The lobotomy. The lobotomy. Yeah. So, you know, these, these American friends who go and have the great Scottish pilgrimage, and it, yeah. it, it opens their eyes to this whole other world. And they get on the plane, and on somewhere on the way back, they have yeah. a lobotomy, and they get back to their club and demand yeah. another beverage cart. They want more cart mm-hmm. parts. They want the greens to yeah. be soft. Do they want, yeah. you know, all this sort of crazy? I wonder what it is. It's something about golfers, isn't there? We're a bit oh, exactly. But get back to your point about Trinity Forest, and I think you know that was a bit of a what was it? The D word. You, the you D word. The depressing. D word. Uh, I think on the opposite side of that, the, the, the positive take on things from the last twelve months, of course, um, is when you know the Presidents Cup showed Royal Melbourne again to the world of golf, and you had the world's best players and you know the high-profile player and Tiger Woods saying, "This is what golf should be." Mm-hmm. And that were his words. You know, we, we, this is what golf should. We should be playing more golf courses like that. So, at that event, and hopefully, in the, you know, in, 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 and you saw it coming out in the social media too, how good Royal Melbourne was was perceived. And I think, if people like that are saying that, hopefully, um, it's the, the the tour and and those in response for the game are actually sort of taking note and starting to think, well, what is it about? Royal Melbourne that is so good and, and you know what is it and, and is this what golf should be and what I like about them my take on that is you know, yes she's the grand dame of Australian golf she's amazing golf course architecture but everything off the fairway edge we're talking about the off the fairway edge it was golden brown it was sandy it's it's the whole things that, that golf should really be and, and in a sustainable world which is a big contrast to the Australian Open played a couple of weeks earlier at the Australian Golf Club which is not, in my view, what golf in this country or in the world should be. It's it's a it's a sort of a 
it's a, it's a different element. But well, particularly on that piece of land it's as well. It's faux, isn't it? It's, it's almost it's yeah. very similar landscape to Royal Sydney. It's even sort of in a little yeah. in, a, in a little cup like yeah. Royal Sydney is. So so there's another t- topic in terms of the Australian. You know, the, the, it was a big contrast for me, and I just thought, well, this is what golf should be, and this is sustainable golf versus an unsustainable model. Mm. Yeah, interesting. You've now re- re- raised the prospect of the double letter SD <laughs> still depressing because yeah, through the whole alphabet <laughs> for, all of, for all of what you say being true and you're right Tiger has been saying that forever and his brethren predominantly don't listen they're not yeah. interested the, the truth of professional golf is the last consideration is the golf course and what qualities it might bring we all know because we've seen professional golf played on completely featureless bland golf courses that yep. offer nothing in the way of interest. And in fact, I think Clates might have even said it. Blokes would play down a highway if you offered them a purse. Yeah, That's the reality of professional golf, so I kind yeah. of get it. But I wish that we could rely on them to yeah. do something. And I think Tiger does a fantastic job of accepting the responsibility of speaking for fun golf. Yep. His design work, you would have seen the same pictures either, I'm sure. Of He's Jack walked the Nashland walk. And some other mm. places. Looks fantastic. He's yeah. undoubtedly walking the walk there. But I I can't help but look at professional golf and think the truth is we'll continue to get it wrong. And this, the example that sets is so difficult to educate past, I think. Mm. I'm not sure, mm. you know, monkey see, monkey do is probably too clumsy a way to put it. But mm. people watch golf on television and automatically assume that must be good or they wouldn't be playing there. Yeah, exactly. Which seems a reasonable assumption, doesn't it? Yeah. These are the best players in the world. Surely they must be playing the best golf courses. It's very hard to convince people mm. that they're not. That's where you get the hard equals good. We have exactly the same issue at my home club. Yeah. And you can say to people, what's the best hole on the golf course? And I'll say the second. Why? It's so difficult. What's your favourite <laughs> hole on the golf course? The fourth. Why? Because I feel like I've got a chance to be. <laughs> can you mm. not see yourself what you've just told me? Yeah. Yeah, mm. that's right. The other thing on TV, of course, is that the most visually uh-huh. interesting things are very expensively obtained, and they try so hard, like big water features and bright um, green grass, bright green grass and very white bunkers white and big. Um, th- those, those, especially those sort of the waste areas in inverted commas that you, you typically see at a place like at Abu Dhabi this last week. Those are incredibly well maintained. Yeah. Like they're not. They're not waste areas. Well, a pro might even shot in there, Adrian. They need to make sure yeah. that there's an equitably perfect life for That's all right. of them. I mean, there's a do. tremendous amount of maintenance that yeah. goes into um, keeping those sandy areas in a in a state that's presented like this pristine mm. playground that they play in, which is, the again, it's the antithesis of what like Harley's doing at like a Royal Sydney or somewhere where it's all about less maintenance and less water and make the golf course more, make golf more sustainable. Yeah, no, I I would hope we'll see. I mean, at the end of the day, proofs in the eating the pudding when we get Royal Sydney done, and that that Royal Sydney it'll be a twelve months of build, and then the actual landscape. I mean, this is a three to five year project yeah. just on that alone. It's it's not going to happen overnight. It's living, breathing stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's been three or five years yeah, of yeah. voting to yeah. decide yeah. whether they're going to do it. I think, <laughs> yeah, I've been involved three years up to this, yeah. so it, it's it's been a long journey. And and the thing is, hopefully, when it's all done and dusted. And they eventually, I would assume, get an Australian Open back there. Hopefully, is it's it's visually, hopefully, it's going to be appealing as well. Mm-hmm. I, look personally, I think it will. The eyes and the beauty of the whole the whole of it. I think when you get that contrast between you know ribbons of manicured turf and you go off the edge into sort of these areas of sandy, golden, rough with 
heathland in it, et cetera, in, on these particular sandy sites, which are low inputs, no water, all those sorts of things, then hopefully that is the visual interest rather than just, as you say, these contrived things which have a lot of money thrown at them to yeah. keep them pristine. So yeah. so I think it's, yeah, if we can... And, and Australian golf is, a lot of it's driven by the fact that, you know, these golf courses cost a lot of money to run. Uh, and, you know, each body on a golf course costs a lot of money. At Moon Links last week, they've got 12 staff looking after 36 holes of golf. Now, I don't know any world where you'd have sort of a 36-hole, you know, you know, substantial golf facility where you've only got 12 staff yeah. maintained, but it's about the bottom line. So if you can turn off all those inputs and all into to these areas that are not the playing surfaces and accept them for what they are uh, and for their character that they have, then that's 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 where golf needs to head. And, yeah. and, and I think we'll be economically forced in this yeah. country for it to go that way. The elusive win-win. You've neatly brought us to the other F word, which I've just made a note of the time, so we'd better finish up soon. But the other F word being the future. What's the future of golf, Harley? There's some big, big, big questions facing this game, not to do with the ball going too far and not to do with the state of professional golf in this country and not to do with participation and membership, but to do with golf's place in the broader community and the planet. It's a big game that uses up big tracts of land, big footprint, big resources. There are a lot of people in the community who don't play golf who look at that and say, you know what, that's pretty excessive. Yeah. What's what's golf going to do in the future? Well, I'm glad you didn't bring me into the, in the ball debate because there's enough people talking about that so we'll, but uh, certainly that's an issue but I think yeah big tracts of land yes they are in, in proportion of things um, there are also big tracts of land that uh, you know playing a course recently in Vietnam I was involved with where it's now the only piece of natural land natural shaped land left in that whole area where everything outside of it has been under the bulldozer to create housing or hotels or development not, not to bad but separate issue do they share it? Do they share that no, tract of well, land with the people who have no access to any other natural land? Because that's another issue, I think. Yeah, look, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, an it's, exclusive. A, it's a, well, no, it's a daily fee-paying golf course, but, but the average, average local isn't just strolling right. through there with his having a, a walk with his mum, dad, and right. the kids. So, um, but so these natural pieces of land, I think even you know, talking about Royal Melbourne before it, it and its land is. And you walk around and you go, well, wow, this is the shape. This is the land that was here before settlement occurred in Melbourne and, and everything around it has been you know streets and houses right. whatever so it's this little tract but getting back to the future of it all is yeah look I think I and I don't want to sort of say the predictable things but it, you know we will always have private golf courses we will always have public golf courses you know and daily fee paying golf courses should the private golf courses open up and sort of pull the fences down up I don't know the answer to that question What's the role of public golf courses? And there's certainly public golf course land that's under threat from land use in terms of, well, this is just golf. And you may be, I don't know, maybe. You know, there's this busy golf course, um, the northern beaches of Sydney that's doing 60,000 rounds a year. It's under threat from losing golf holes. And I think that golf club needs to sort of, it's a busy golf course and I think it's defended itself now, but it's going to come under attack again in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Same issue. We want sporting fields for kids. Um, yeah, but uh, uh, 10-year-old kids playing footy and soccer are more important to have sporting facilities than 60 or 70 or 80-year-olds enjoying sport in their latter parts of their life where sport's great for their physical and mental well-being as well. So we shouldn't put a value that kids' sporting fields are more important than an adult or, or older person's sporting fields, is my view. Um, but, you know, do we, do we look at these facilities and say, OK, golf can be played there five days a week and there's two days a week where golf's not played there and 
people can walk around with their dogs or is it you know you can walk your dog around here in the morning or walk your kids and ride a bike and play with the ball um, at this time of the day and the rest of the day it's golf you know so we're not going to have golf and people walking through necessarily at the same time of the day in sort of this litigious society but maybe we just turn it on turn it off and open these things up to yeah. the old course is closed on Sunday, oh, Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. correct Andy it's Staples has had some really interesting mm. Uh, concepts around yeah. golf. I yeah. think the, is it Rockwind in New Mexico has won a couple of mm. awards. They've got the walking trails and yeah. the clubhouse is the hub of all that activity. That's where you park your car, whether you're walking or playing golf. Or I think he did one place had a zip line <laughs> nearby right. and yeah. all those sorts of things. Golf hasn't been very creative in trying to Correct. work itself into society. No, it? no, it hasn't. I think golf's to blame for a lot of its ills. Yeah, and time. I think it's it's diversifying itself um, away from just, you know, traditional 18 holes or traditional nine holes. It's, it's diverse. looking at the land use and, and saying, well, what else can we be? And I, I guess the smart clubs can look at it. I mean, the, the one I'm involved with up at Chatswood here, it's got some walking trails that sort of almost dangerously go through that golf course at the moment that, that, that there's, a, there's an arrangement with the council to have these. So people walk their dogs through these paths, through this lovely bush down to Lane Cove River and what have you. Um, and I think you know the future of that place will be you know taking it from where it is traditionally being played as a, a pretty ordinary eighteen into something which, as a good twelve holes and a driving range and practice facility, teaching facilities, bring the local school kids in to to come and play. We'll have six short holes on the range itself with artificial greens, which uh, enable people to will turn the range off. All of a sudden, kids can out play six holes of golf, um, or the old boys can on a Thursday on this on the range, uh, and then turn it back on again and people practice. So there's there's I think just looking at the facilities and look, how can we diversify them, but also look at their ecological role, these facilities in, in council. If we shut these things down and turn them into sporting fields or turn them into housing, we're going to lose large tracts of scalable, sizable green space that I think is important in our urban environments. Um, um, but, you know, some, something like this golf course I'm talking about it needs to defend itself from, from things, needs to start to think about what it's going to be and how they're going to... Uh, def- defend golf or, or diversify its offerings to to a broader church of, of users, um, and I think you know you hear of golf courses getting shut down because the council's acquired Victoria Park in Brisbane, they're shutting it all down. It's kind of like again the attitude is, oh, that's golf. That's um, right. We can just do it. It's no a declining sport, declining yeah. sport, declining yeah. usage. We'll just Old shut people. it, shut it all down. But there's, there's probably another approach to this. Do we shut it all down from 18 holes to like non-golf? Or do we say, let's be clever about this and creative and say, let's look at this land. How can we keep golf going? Maybe golf does become 15 holes or 12 holes or 9 holes. And we integrate um, right. walking trails into it. And we do all these other things. So it becomes a multifaceted, diverse facility. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's some of the challenges and I think that's some of the opportunities that also lie in, in the way we look at things. Not just making it black and white, golf or non-golf. That's right. An inclusive, inclusive facility. Which something. I, I have this thing. I, I hate losing something that I've got. And the 18-hole argument is always like, you're never going to get back to 18 holes if you give up any holes. Um, I'm I'm always interested in some other solution as well where... uh, It's a bit different where it's a really small piece of land and it's not 18 good holes. Yeah. um, If you've got 18 holes, but you can make some of those holes multi-use and... You know, golfers at those times aren't playing those holes, but they're multi-use. Like every... A lot of courses have a flat area that could be... That's um, right. You know, it's something I've not heard of before, but... it would be something that could work at a place We've like... We've got an international space station. Yes, <laughs> we can probably we, make we that happen. We can surely think of some yeah. innovative if, ways to use the space. If you've got a course uh, like a Warringah up in, yep. in Sydney, which is 18 holes currently, but actually quite flat, 
Yeah. Um, that's why I guess that's why it looks so attractive as potentially playing Stick fields. It's almost playing fields already. Um, you know, if you could let the members play their eighteen holes on their comp days, but then just take a few of those holes out of play, but they're somehow multi-use. With you know, we have golf courses inside racetracks. Like, there's surely, a, yeah. Surely we can work out a way to, Jane to make that work. Jane, we used to work with at Golf Link yep. told me she's from Bathurst, I think, or I dropped yep. that way. There's a golf course up there, one of the smaller golf courses up there. That on a Saturday morning, the golfers tee off through the cricket match. Yeah, so right. when they arrive on oh. the tee, the cricketers all stop and stand back, and the golfers hit through, and away fantastic. they go. They all wave to each other. That's and fantastic. The cricketers go back. It's a small club. There's probably only thirty people probably all know through, each other. But yeah, that's a, that's a that's a it's a sort of a wonderful idea. The hypocrisy sometimes. This is what annoys me. This is where I think golf's done such a bad job, and we don't stand up for ourselves. I mean, the hypocrisy of the notion that football is somehow more important than golf. I don't think golf's more important than football. No. Football's certainly not more important than golf. Neither yeah. is netball or tennis yeah. or any of those other sports competing for that space. Yeah. But there's this attitude, it would seem, particularly from councils and from people who don't play golf, is golf is for rich, elite other people. It's not They're not our sort of people. So we mm. can take it away. In fact, mm. they've, been, they've been stealing it off us forever. And the hypocrisy of councils developing areas like they have around Moore Park with high-rise buildings, and then after all of that's done and they've got all the money from the developer saying... There's not really much green space for all these residents. We really need to take nine holes of more park back so they've got somewhere to go. It's like, well, it's the same amount of green space before you started building. That's right. You know, you kind of could have thought about that first, but they're the things I think golf's going to... But but golf needs to get proactive, and I'm going to say it for the thousandth time. I think it's the job of Golf Australia not to react, as they have with Vic Park, but to be proactive, to be going around the country and saying to councils, what is your golf strategy? What do you have? What do you want it to be? We are the golf experts. Let us help you with some of the options. And then it's up to golf to offer creative solutions like yourself, like Clates, like Andy Staples, mm. to, to say to, to councils, well, look, here's a range of ways you could go about managing the golf you've got. Make getting rid of golf absolutely the last of them because if you take it away, you take it away from a demographic that needs it, Correct. being older people, and you could make the case convincingly I think you're better off to spend money on a golf course than a football field because a football field services predominantly blokes predominantly from the time they're about 8 till they're about 30 that's right that's what that's who uses that facility that's the round we know that's changing and that the AFLW has been very successful and women's cricket and that will continue to be the case even if we get to 50-50 it services a demographic of about 8 to about 30 yep golf services Golf services the demographic either side of that yep. and throughout that whole thing as well. So yep. we're talking to golfers here, so we haven't helped ourselves. But that's the case mm. that golf, and to me that means Golf Australia, needs to go out and proactively put before we lose. We lost Hudson Park. Yep. Yep. We've lost Vic Park. Park. It's just done. There's if you're trying to close the Park. library there, there would have been people marching in the streets. But they just announced one day we're closing the golf course, and that was it. The golf course got closed. You know what they're going to do? They're going to dig a big hole and fill it with water. Yeah, well, that's just nuts, isn't it? And it, well, it, just, it may not be, yep. but that's not a consultation process. That's not a, what's the strategy for this? That's just a, yeah, we can get away with just doing this, so we'll just do this. And that's wrong. That's really wrong. Yeah, yeah. And golfers yeah. have the right to be offended by that. Yeah. And and to be, well, golf, it's not, it's, it is up to Golf Australia to lead the way there, but it's... I think what they the approach that they need to take is that they can see that there's people like Harley out there who can advise on the mm. environmental stuff and and you know native restoration that sort of thing. There's other people who are really experienced at dealing with council. 
there's other people who are really experienced at dealing with some of the other interest groups. Mm-hmm. Um, what something golf doesn't really have is great advocates going That's up right. against some of these interest groups in you know in the forums where these decisions yeah. are made, and it. It's unreasonable, I think, to expect a Golf Australia to employ all of those people. No, no, no I don't think they've and, got the and in-house. dispatch them all over the country. Agree. But that's an impossible task. Agreed. But having Golf Australia engage with those people who can who can be on the front line, I think Say, that's hey, an important. Are you defending golf, use the word defending golf. I think that's a great great way to think of it, because mm. it, it, it's not just um, keeping people out of golf courses. It's not that type of defence. It's it's like making the case for golf integrated into the right, integrating it. so integrating. taking down fences and putting walking paths yeah. in in safe areas and, yeah. and educating golfers that that's going to be a part mm-hmm. of the future of golf in yeah. certain golf courses there's always going to be the closed gate places still that's yeah. of the, anybody who's concerned about losing that need not be concerned yeah. that's going to still exist nobody's if coming for Royal Sydney or exactly. Royal Melbourne yeah. or the Australian yeah. or the Lakes yeah. so it, more parks are classic you know you yeah. went more park, I mean, you, you watch over the last 15 years you go to that driving range and, and you know, 20 years ago there was probably three-story buildings, and now it's sort of like multiple 20-story <laughs> buildings happening there. And where do they all go? You know, and it's Centennial Park. But interestingly, let's not forget the economics of golf too. You know, more park, the golf course, and the driving range generates a surplus of money. Profit. It's a very yep. profitable yeah, sure golf facility. That then that money goes in sustaining the rest of Centennial Parkland. Right. Yeah. So, so doesn't go into more park golf. T- Tell t- you what. You could put a pretty good little path recourse around Centennial Park, couldn't you? That's, uh, <laughs> eh? Every time you go for a picnic there, you can just start mapping it out. You think, well, wasn't the Australian golf right. course originally up in part of Centennial Park, but then cycling had become a, a craze in the 1800s, yeah. and, and women's cycling needed a place to go, and so it was a particular route through Centennial Parklands that bumped the Australians where golf it is today. lost out to big cycling. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, lost and, out to and, cycling. And, and, and <laughs> is doing so again. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're internal right. golf issues. They're not yeah. just with what yeah, we're yeah. Yeah. It's so, a similar demographic that chases. Yeah. Harley, I always feel this when I sit down and talk to people who are immersed in golf about golf. We've barely scratched the surface. But yeah, we I must agree. Bring it to an end because yeah. we've, I've just had a look at the time and if there's anybody still listening, congratulations, you have some stamina. Stamina. Well done. Thank Harley Cruz, must say thank you to you. It's been great to have you in, mate, and we we'll, must get you in again. I didn't realise you Pleasure. lived nearby, so the studio is right here. I'm, I'm nine minutes away. Confession. I'm nine minutes away yeah. according to Google Maps. So yeah. you might find yourself being a guest co-host <laughs> yeah. if you're not careful. Yeah. Uh, Adrian Logue, always terrific to see you in the studio, mate. Thanks for your time today. Thanks very much, Rod. Episode 15 of the Good Good Golf Podcast in the books. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed talking, and we will be back to do it all again, of course, next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.